Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome to another edition of the Snooker Scene Podcast. Uh, someone was saying last week, I sounded tired. They've obviously never <laughs> covered the World Championship. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long one this year. Obviously, we had the qualifying as well. But here we are, recording this on the morning <clears throat> of the semi-finals. And I'll just remind you uh, of our predictions for the semi-finals before the tournament began, because uh, obviously people come to us for expertise. So mm. uh, I said it would be Ronnie O'Sullivan against John Higgins and Karen Wilson against Yan Bing Tao. And you said it would be Ding Jun Wei against Mark Allen. And Neil Robertson against Sean Murphy. So, uh, well, we got one each there. And to be fair, your Sean Murphy shout has come, has come to fruition because ex- what you said about him finding some form is exactly what's happened. Yeah, I, I say this all the time now. We've got maybe six, seven, eight players who all, when they play well, are capable of doing absolutely anything and playing to pretty much any level. And it seems that they seem to take their turns to do it. Now, some have more turns than others. Obviously, Judd Trump has has reached that level more than anyone else over the last couple of years. Murphy, perhaps not so much this season. And it just felt he was maybe in position to be that player who suddenly found some form at the Crucible. I think Trump looked to be under a bit of pressure in that match. And, you know, had he won the championship this year, as I think a lot of people expected he might, we would now be talking about Trump as, well, how many can he go on to win? Instead of which, it just shows you the difference that one match can make. Now, he's still a one-time only world champion who is clearly good enough to be a three, four, five-time world champion. And the longer he goes on, still having only won at once, I think the more pressure he's going to put on himself to add to that because he seems to want to build a legacy. He's relentless in his pursuit of titles. Nowhere is that going to apply more than in terms of world titles because that's really where you establish your credentials as an authentic all-time great of the game. And it just felt he seemed to be a bit under pressure. Now, it looked as though he was going to get through it in the end last night. Murphy was all over the place for most of the evening session. But we talk about him finding the form uh, that we know he's capable of in the context of his season, when he really needed to find it last night in the context of the match, because it had completely deserted him. He got one good chance, the sort of chance you really want to have when you're right in among them from the start, when you're looking to get some rhythm. He took that chance well. And finished it out magnificently. And here he is now, for the first time in six years, 
into the semi-finals. Well, we'll return uh, to Trump and indeed Neil Robertson later. But it's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, there was a lot of talk about those two getting to two world titles, as you say. Mm. Whereas actually now there are two players who weren't really talked about that much before the tournament, Stuart Bingham and Sean Murphy, who could actually do that. Um, it'd be interesting if one of those got to two before the other two players. But let's let's start on an upbeat note, unusually for us, because um, a couple of emails from people actually been to the Crucible, um, which is nice to hear. So Matt Tarrant, he writes this, he's from Derby. He says, I'm sitting with a coffee outside the Winter Gardens in Sheffield, waiting for the gates to open. For, at the age of 53, my Crucible debut. I'm excited like a kid. This is in no small part down to you two, who've been a big part in the reignition of my snooker passion. I hope World Snooker see the value of your podcast work in raising the profile and interest levels in the game. It might be all about eyeballs, but ticket sales still matter. And I bought mine thanks to you guys. Now, listen to this bit. He says, this is my first live snooker since Silvino Francisco won the Dulux British Open at the Assembly Rooms in Derby when I was a very young man. Hopefully the first of many. Now, for those who don't know, that was 1985. So we're going mm. back. We're going back 36 years. I like the fact as well that the, um, the, of course, the final after that, the next tournament was the World Championship where Dennis beat Steve on the black. And Matt obviously thought, nah, this is not for me, this sport. Not exciting, <laughs> yeah, yeah, not yeah. exciting enough. Great to hear, Matt, that you've gone back. Um, listen, it's nothing to do with us. It's uh, snooker. Snooker is a fantastic live experience, but it's good to know you battled through the, uh, the, uh, the sort of protocols and everything. Uh, in terms of world snooker seeing the value of the pocket, of course they don't. They, I mean, they, they, as I said last year, basically that what they're interested in is what they're doing themselves. They had a podcast. It, it's not. It not doesn't exist now, though. Oddly enough. Um, anyway, uh, so that's. I did say we'd start on an upbeat note. Um, but we should we should get we should get Mr. Tarrant to. You can see where this is going, can't you? Oh, no. To make a call on where the semi-finals are going to go. He'll say, well, it's probably a bit fifty-fifty. Yeah. Uh, Here comes the tumbleweed. Yeah. Uh, Danny has also uh, written, and he's also been. So Danny says, uh, last weekend I visited the Crucible for the first time. In fact, it was the first time I've been to a snooker event before. I have to say I was well and truly blown away by the experience. Having visited some of the most iconic venues in football, Anfield, Goodison Park, Villa Park, Camp Nou, Old Trafford, St. James's Park, many more, the sense of history as soon as I got there was spine-tingling and unmatched by any of the other sporting venues listed above. Thinking of how many huge, memorable and iconic events that have been taken place in that tiny room, such as the Henry White Battles, 85 final, of course, Ronnie winning his six world titles to name, just a few was really crazy. I don't think you can really appreciate just how small and compact it is unless you visit. It looks much bigger on the telly than what it actually is. I also got away from Jimmy White as I was leaving and the door to the Eurosport studio was open near where I exited the arena, which topped off a great experience. I know the World Championships are contracted to take place in Sheffield for the next decade or so. Whilst I appreciate Stuka as a global game, I completely agree we need more majors to take place abroad. The World Championship should never leave Sheffield. He also says he's hoping either Mark Williams or Neil Robertson win. Well, obviously, that's not, to, that's not going to happen now, but thanks, Daddy. Well, yeah, I mean, listen, I, it's absolutely true. When you walk into that arena, when you've watched it on the telly, you just, it is incomprehension how small it actually is compared to what it looks like. Um, now, the, it's actually contracted there for, I think, another five years, six, five or six years. I think that's right, yeah. Um, who knows? I mean, obviously, Barry Hearn has stepped away. Listen, there's no uh, great uh, move from anyone to try and get it taken away from there. That's, you know, it's, it, it is well, an yeah. iconic venue and, and go on. Well, I mean, I was only thinking about this the other day. Think back to sort of 10 or maybe more like 15 or 20 years ago. How fashionable it was then to talk about, oh, let's move it to a bigger venue. Let's have it in Liverpool or Manchester or London or somewhere like that. I mean, what were people thinking? 
<laughs> you know, you, you talk about that sense of history. You can't pick that up and just drop it somewhere else. And I mean, I, you know, it's signed up for another five years. We'll try and sign it up for another 105 because the day the World Championship leaves the Crucible, which hopefully will never come, is the day it is not the same event anymore. And all that history, you know, it, it will be trampled on if they ever do that. And, you know, I know Barry said that, didn't he? He said, I don't want to have it written on my gravestone that I was the guy who took snooker away from the Crucible. I would suspect and hope that Steve Dawson will feel exactly the same way about it and that there'll be no move to bring it away. But you think back to like the, the mid 2000s, how close it came because there was a bidding process. Sheffield was not the highest bidder. I think Liverpool was. But the decision was made in the overall scheme of things to keep it at the Crucible. And just think how terrible it would have been if, if they'd made the decision the other way. Yeah, um, absolutely. There, there is one um, sort of caveat to all of that, which is that obviously a lot of it rests on the fate of the Crucible Theatre itself. Now, if something yeah. happens to that, if that closed down for whatever reason, which I, I think is unlikely because it's a, a hugely successful theatre, very well regarded, actually, outside of London. Um, but if it did, then obviously that settles the whole matter. But I mean, listen, I'm, I'm on board with everything you've said. Uh, now, uh, just one other thing before we sort of talk about the last week of the tournament itself. Remember last week um, we had a letter from a lady about her 10-year-old son who they got tickets for him. Oh, yeah. Because, because of the COVID regulations, he couldn't go. Now, James Cook, our American correspondent, mm. still in Colorado, he wrote on a number of issues, but he actually made a good point. He said uh, surely something could be done for the lad, whether, you know, get an autograph cue or get something sent to him um, just as a sort of token that Snooker hasn't forgotten him. And you're quite right, James. I have contacted Will Snooker. And that hopefully they're going to do something so that he'll get some memento of the tournament. And hopefully that means that, you know, he'll still be enthusiastic enough to go to go next year. So thanks for that suggestion. And hopefully, hopefully that's on its way. Um, we'll hopefully go to a few more emails later, not least because there's one that praises me. But uh, <laughs> but um, Gloss not, over that one. not that we're needy or desperate here. But anyway, let's. Uh, so we were here last week just as the second round was sort of getting underway. And the story of the first round was the sort of lack of upsets. Uh, but then we had, of course, not a, well, not a huge upset, really, McGill beating O'Sullivan in terms of, you know, you could see it happening. But the way it happened, I think, was very interesting. And really, you know, if you wanted to explain what the Crucible is to anyone, that match was a kind of archetype of, of how these things happen. You've got McGill plays out of his skin second session to lead 10-6, starts to feel it, Ronnie comes back. But then the pressure changes because the match has gone level or Ronnie's got a chance to win the match. And suddenly McGill, who looked down and out, turns it round and, and wins it very impressively. Yeah, I think it's been the best match so far, actually. I think it's between that and maybe the Trump-Murphy match. But this one, to me, just shades it. Yeah, it looked to be gone for McGill. I mean, he had done so much good work to put himself in a strong position, and it looked as though it was all going to be in vain, but finished it out so well. And it's a fairly premature end to the championship for O'Sullivan. I mean, we see it so often with defending champions. They just go out early and... We did say, I think, I don't yeah. know, was it last week or maybe the week before, that we really did think McGill had a very good chance in that match. M McGill obviously became very consistent about three or four years ago, went in a great one, run, uh, won uh, the Indian Open, wasn't it? And yeah. got himself into the top 16 and then completely fell away. And then we heard that he had got himself into this new practice setup with John Higgins and Stephen Maguire, I think in an industrial estate somewhere around the Glasgow area. And we were like, OK, this is it. This is really going to turn it around from again. For a long time, it didn't actually happen. And we were thinking, well, maybe maybe he's just not going to get back to the level he was at a couple of years ago. Maybe that was his time in the spotlight. And even after what he did last season, it's not like he had a brilliant season this time around and really built on that and did anything to suggest he was going to make a big impact on well, the he championship. Hadn't, he, hadn't, he hadn't gone past the last 16 in a ranking. Yeah, well, there you go. So 
But he just found it again. And, you know, we were talking the other week about crucible players. Look at his record there. It's completely out of proportion, really, to what he's done elsewhere. And the list of players he's beaten at the crucible, Selby when he was defending champion, now O'Sullivan and when he's defending champion. He's beaten Murphy there as well in the past. So a great record there and just seems to find something extra uh, when he gets there, even if it wasn't quite enough to uh, to see him through. I just thought he came into his own when the pressure was on. And I mean, even yesterday with Bingham, mm. you know, he, he sort of, towards the end, he was smiling. He just seems to enjoy, for whatever reason, when, when it gets really tough. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a terrific performance. You know, like it, it is one of those where, though, where the psychology definitely changes from Sullivan's perspective. When you're chasing, it's like a, a sort of long distance race. You can see the guy in front of you. And you catch, you can catch him up. But then, when you're level again, it's who who gets the sprint to the line, and you're under pressure, having put all that effort in to catch up, to then get it won. And we, you know, we see matches at the Crucible like that all the time. We saw it with Trump. You know, Murphy had gone in that quarterfinal. It seemed, yeah. It seemed. Yeah. But then, as you said, suddenly, you know, it's eleven each. Suddenly, he finds something. So that was, I suppose, the standout of uh, of round two. I was very impressed though with Mark Williams's performance in in, in round two. Um, just the d- disparity in kind of what it seemed to mean to the players. John Higgins to play his best has to be really intense, really determined. You see that look on his face and he was playing someone who he knows well has played many times over 30 years who seemed to just be basically knocking them around. And I think that put massive pressure on Higgins. He couldn't quite understand how Mark Williams could outwardly anyway, look so relaxed. Um, and again, it looked like there was sort of a mini recovery was on, but then they had to stop. It went 10-3 to 10-6. Higgins played three really good frames, long for maximum, all the rest of it. Uh, but then he gave Williams a chance to regroup, came back, won it easily. Um, he, he said himself, though, and it bore fruit when he lost to Selby, he didn't actually feel he, he was in the same form as three years ago when he, when he won the tournament. But he seemed to enjoy his time at Sheffield this year. Yeah, I, I mean, you talk about Williams. We were mentioning how he gets under people's skin, and that's how he does it. He just has this amazingly laid-back attitude, and you can see how that would irritate opponents, and they might think, you know, this isn't right. You know, this means so much. How can you be so laid-back about it? But as we know, there's just nobody else like him. I've, I've never met anyone like Mark Williams in any walk of life who, who has such a magnificent mindset, and it's so productive for him. But I wonder with Higgins now, that's two, you know, fairly early exits from the World Championship in a row. I wonder now if those three straight World Final defeats maybe just changed his attitude a bit and... Maybe when he goes there, he isn't quite up for the fight in the way that he was in getting to those three finals in a row because it ended in disappointment for him each of those times. But I think given the the bit of form that Williams was showing coming into the championship, it was no surprise at all that he beat Higgins. But I don't think we would have expected it to be quite as comfortable as it ultimately was. Well, we don't duck the big questions on this podcast. We duck the big answers, not the big questions. But I'm going to ask the question of you, okay? Mm. The class of 92 of Sullivan, Higgins and Williams. Will any of them win this title again. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Can I duck that? Yeah. yeah. Well, look. I suppose, I suppose I'll, I'll answer it myself first. Okay. I suppose the one you don't most really need li- me here today, do you? Well, no, the one most likely to is Ronnie, obviously. You know, yeah, I, don't, I would I don't, agree with that. I don't yeah. think you can completely strike his name off, off the likelies. The other two, I mean, Mark will be 47 next year, you know, as, 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 and John will be nearly the same age. It seems less likely for those two now. Yeah, but, but, why does that matter? Because Phil Taylor was world champion at, what, 52 in darts? Yeah. And, I mean, you know, they're not physical sports in the way other sports are. Now, as you get older, of course, things go. Your concentration, your stamina, even your eyesight, things like that. But no more so in darts than in snooker. And, I mean, the last time he got to the final, 
Uh, it was Rob Cross beaten, wasn't it? And a, a title was like 57 or something. I, I don't think we're near the end for those guys, you know. I think you, you look at Williams seems to have rediscovered his hunger, which seems to come and go as the years go by. Higgins has definitely rededicated himself over the last few months. And O'Sullivan, for all he tries to protest otherwise, has never really lost interest. Now, they'll all be 46 by the end of this year. Ray Reardon won a ranking event when, he's 50, when he was 50. And that is still the all-time record. I'm going to say now, I don't think that record's going to last much longer because I think at least one of those guys, if not all of them, will be ranking event winners in their 50s. And, and why not the world championship? I, I think they've still got a lot of years left. So overall, when you look at how good they are and the fact that they might still have another six, seven, eight years realistically to win it, I mean, that's a lot of world championship campaigns. That's maybe 24, 25 between them. So on balance, you would have to say probably it's more likely than not that one of them will manage to do it. Well, I definitely think Ronnie, um, because, of course, he's the youngest ever ranking event winner. I think he could definitely become the oldest ever, which would be some achievement. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I agree with what you were saying, actually, that O'Sullivan is perhaps the most likely to win it again. I definitely think if, if one of them is going to beat Reardon's record, he would be the most likely. But I think it's very possible that all three of them could end up breaking it and all be uh, winners in their 50s. Because you look at I me, mean, Reardon's the classic example. He had been the best player in the world, but what was coming up behind him was so good that he couldn't keep up. You can't say the same about the players coming up behind those guys now. One of the great performances, I think, was Mark Selby against Mark Allen. Again, the, the, I did the middle session where Allen, it looked like it might start to turn. They had to come up one frame early, but Sel, Selby won the last frame there. Mark Allen, a player, I mean, you tipped him, I think, uh, for the, well, you tipped him to win it last year, I think. I did they last year. tipped him for the semis this year. A lot of people sort of thought it's sort of counterintuitive in a way. He's had a quiet season. He'll be fresher. But I think we saw in that match how hard it is to, to, to you know, to, to make progress in this event when you're playing someone like Selby, who he's made for the Crucible. Um, I'm not saying Mark Allen, you know, necessarily would have got any further playing anyone else. But, you know, that match was a, a masterclass, actually, in all areas. Yeah. And I think Allen has had a quiet season for a reason, actually. And now that it's over, you can really reflect on this. He's spoken. He's, he's got all kinds of problems going yeah. on off the table. And he's talking now about the fact that he may not be around for the start of next season. He might take a while away from the game to try to sort out his personal problems. And we hope he manages to do that. And it's very hard to put all that to one side. You know, when you consider as well how much snooker you have to play day after day for basically a week and a half once you get into the second round. So, yes, he's had a quiet season, but uh, there was a reason for that. And as you say, I mean, th th there were times that it looked as though he was getting close to Selby, but it, it felt as though every time he threatened to do it, Selby would just keep on winning the next frame and uh, pulling away from him. And in the end, it was it was quite comfortable for him. But it was a Selby masterclass. It was, uh, people tend to judge performances way too much on the breaks you make. Now, you don't win a lot of best of 25 matches without scoring heavily, but it's the all-round game that really makes you successful there, and Selby has proved that more than anyone. And I thought his all-round game, both in the second round and the quarterfinals, was, was absolutely magnificent. And that's why it's perhaps starting to feel like a classic Selby title campaign. Well, most people seem to be sort of uh, tipping him at this stage. Uh, we'll see. He overwhelmed Mark Williams in the quarterfinals. Uh, there was a great match between Bingham and McGill. Bingham, I, I was very impressed with him yesterday. He was 10-7 down to someone who was playing brilliantly. And you saw real fight from Bingham. You saw it in his face. You saw it in his body language. I guess, you know, it, I mean, listen, it's the World Championship. Why wouldn't you? But... You know, I think we often think of Stuart as quite amiable. We always say how much he loves the game, as mm. if he's just as if he's just happy just to play, and that's it. 
No, he wants to win it, clearly. You know, he had to go and qualify. He's had all season in his ear, he's had this thing, you know, oh, you might be out to 16, you might be out to 16. Well, guess what? He dropped out to 16, he qualified comfortably. He came here without the pressure of being a seed. Obviously, very tough match against Ding, pulled away against Jamie Jones, and he's back in the one table. And, you know, the tears were there again, not quite as, uh, not quite as much mm. as the first time he got there six years ago, but you saw what it meant to him. And I think we must remember with Stuart what a great competitor he is. He's not just someone who he's happy just to play. He wants to win. And he, it was a great win yesterday. Fifth player to win with a, a century and a decider of the mm. Crucible. Yeah, and it isn't hard for him to find that fight because even when he's behind in the game, because, as we say, he loves to play, he loves to compete. He's someone you can almost imagine, even if he won the championship again, he might be tinged with a little bit of sadness that it was over. and you know, He wouldn't have another match to go and play the next yeah. day because he just loves it so much. So that's why I think there's never an issue for him trying to find that fight to turn around a match. Uh, and maybe that's the thing. You know, if you're a player who's been a top player for a number of years and has achieved a lot in the game and you're struggling seems to me the thing to do is to drop out of the top 16. Because Ding did it, then he went and got to the world final. Robertson did it. He went out yeah. and won the Scottish Open and has you know, continued to be a very consistent winner ever since then. Uh, so, yeah, it was fantastic the way Bingham finished it. He's starting to remind me a lot, actually, of John Higgins. He doesn't have the same all-round game. I don't think anyone you know, can maybe, or not many yeah. players can claim to have that. And Stuart would be the first to admit that, that what his game is all about is getting in among the balls and scoring very, very heavily. And when he's in that zone, he just seems to have that Higgins-esque refusal to leave the table until the frame is won. And that's going to stand him uh, you know, very well in the big challenges ahead over the coming days. So Selby v, uh, Selby v Bingham is the first semi-final. But let's talk about the two real, I guess, pre-tournament favourites, Trump and Robertson. Mm. Um, let's start with Trump. We sort of touched on it at the start. Um it's interesting. We sort of backed away from tipping him because he felt like the obvious choice um, and he, he's not going to win it this year. It, it, I still say Judd Trump is already a great of snooker. Now, there's a sort of argument um, that's been raging, as you can imagine, online about what constitutes a great. To me, it's a, it is about world titles, definitely, at the end of your career. And it's also about winning lots of other titles. Now, he's doing the, the second half of that, winning lots of other titles. You can't probably judge a player until their career is either over or very, very sort of close to being over. Judd Trump is still only 31. Uh, this is, his, I think, his 16th season. So for comparison, by this stage, Mark Selby had only won one world title, mm. 16, 16 years into his professional career. Ronnie O'Sullivan, at the end, I think at the end of his 16th season, won his third world title. John Higgins, by that point, had won two. So it's not like he's miles off those guys compared to Davis and Hendry. He is, but compared to Davis and Hendry, everybody is. Um, mm. But it's a disappointment com- compared to how well he's played all season, the way he's sort of blasted through the field in some of these other tournaments. You know, he knows, and you said it yourself, he knows that the World Championship is a tournament you're measured by, and he leaves this year still stuck on one. Yeah. So, I mean, as I was saying earlier, that's the thing. Will he let that get into his head? Because he seems to have this relentless desire for success now. And as I was saying earlier, that's going to come out in Sheffield more than anywhere else. Now, if he gets into that mindset that I think Robertson, as we'll discuss, has maybe got into of putting too much pressure and expectation on himself to become a multiple world champion, then that's not going to be in his favour at all. And yes, as you say, he's still very young. He'll have many, many years left to win it. But will there be that many years where he goes in having played so well throughout the season as he has the last two years. You look at it now, three years in a row, 
he's gone in as the form player of the season. Who was the last player we could say that about? Played so well in 2019 off the back of that, but has had an even better season going in the last two years and hasn't happened for him at all. I mean, to have not got past the quarterfinals, I think it's disappointing for him in relation to the rest of, of what he's done throughout the season. So he, he, he took the loss of his title last season very well, if you judge it by how he then came out the following season, which started you know, almost immediately after that. So it'll be interesting to see if he does that again, you know, whenever next season starts, can he, can he put that disappointment behind him and start all over again? I mean, some people would look at this as sort of, you know, first world problems in a way. He still won the world championship. Yeah. Well, anyone who's ever picked up a queue, you know, we've all been there in the club or, where, or wherever you have a table dreaming of, oh, this is the, to win the world championship. He's done it, right? So that is an ambition realised. The problem is that when people in any sport, when you sort of start ranking the greats, and it's all pub chat, really, but when you start ranking the greats, what are you going to look at? You're going to look at the biggest event by far in the game. And, you know, this is the biggest event by far in the game. And how many times you've won it? Clearly, that's yeah. that's a metric you're going to use. Now, Judd Trump is still in his early 30s. Ten years from now, he might have won it another five times. We don't know. But I definitely think, just watching his performances, he didn't really play great for that long in the event. He had bursts where he did, but they were only sort of two or three frames, really. He didn't sort of turn it on and rampage through a session. And you think, wow, you know, he's playing the, the snooker he's played all year. That didn't really happen. I think he was inhibited by, you know, the occasion and the, all the sort of pressure on him. And I don't know how you, I don't know how you um, get away from that unless you sort of have a bad season next year almost. You know, you don't mm. do so well. People are not looking at you so much. Maybe people have written you off. I don't know. Uh, and then you come good. It's difficult. I mean, listen, it's a difficult tournament to win once. And he's done that. And we shouldn't forget that. Um, but, you know, as I say, he leaves Sheffield this year and he's, he's not going to be the winner. Maybe he needs to drop out of the top 16, like I was saying earlier. Although it, <laughs> well, that'll probably, take some doing. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, it's almost harder for him yeah. uh, to, 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 to drop out and stay in. Of course, it doesn't matter about pub chat at the moment because there are no pubs to have no. these chats in. But look, he is a great of the game. When we did our top 10 of all time, uh, whenever it was, about a year ago now, I mean, we both put him firmly in there. But he's not in that top four or five. And he knows he's good enough to be by the end of his career. He's going to have to win a few more world titles to get there. Well, let's talk about Neil Robertson. Um, mm. this was like a psychodrama what happened here he himself before the tournament identified the reason he'd lost the last couple of world titles he uh, world championships he'd lost to John Higgins and Mark Selby in the quarterfinals and he identified why he ended up getting dragged into a game that didn't suit him he was very clear he couldn't let that happen again so what happens against Kyron Wilson he's 4-2 up after two centuries Wilson is struggling. He's thrown away a frame where he's Mr. Black. He's not playing great. Frame seven, Robertson plays the negative break-off shot. He plays into the back of the pack, the Mark Williams break-off. And to me, that instilled a negative mindset into his game that didn't shift for the rest of the match. He continued to play that break-off shot for the rest of the match. He, he went into that zone that he himself identified he couldn't afford to. And he never got out of it. And I, I suppose when you're out there, it's hard to identify that that's happened, maybe. But it's happened again, hasn't it? The exact same thing. Mm. Yeah. The whole match for me was encapsulated in one shot. It was Robertson's break-off shot in the 17th frame. And, of course, the whole thing about playing that new break-off that we're seeing is to guarantee that you don't leave a red. But you don't guarantee not leaving a red because we've seen a number of times the players have. And it worked out so well for Wilson because he took the red to the middle. It was a natural angle to then leave himself a great angle on the black 
which, by the way, is always going to be available when you play that break-off shot. Thunders into the Reds, century break. That set the tone for the whole morning. And Robertson's body language wasn't good at all. As Wilson was making that break, you could see he was thinking, oh, I've just chucked away a frame here. Am I going to chuck away my world championship chances again? Didn't seem to change his mindset after that. But as you say, when you're out there and you're mired in it, it's very difficult to sort of step back and, and, and change your mindset like that. Um, what we saw in the way you summed up that match there is something we see time and again at the World Championship. You can seem to be on top in a match, but if you don't put your opponent away, there's plenty of time for him to turn it round. So many of O'Sullivan's opponents found that last year. I mean, with the exception, obviously, of the first round, which was a landslide, all of O'Sullivan's opponents after that had him on the ropes for a while. Even Wilson on the Saturday night could have put himself in a position of maybe even leading or at least getting back to one behind going into the final day. He didn't take it the same way that Williams hadn't put O'Sullivan away. Ding hadn't put him away when they both had the chance. And most notably of all, Selby, who must still be wondering all these months later how he didn't win that semi-final. And that was what Robertson found. As you say, he was getting on top. His opponent was struggling. But if you don't put your opponent away, especially when it's someone of Wilson's quality, they have the time to find their form once again. And Wilson did in the final session because there's been a lot of focus on how bad Robertson was yesterday morning. But how well did Wilson play? 133, 59, 62, 84. To produce those breaks in a five-frame spell when you're coming to the climactic stages of a big match against a big player at the Crucible. It's a very, very good performance. And underlined yet again, even further, that Wilson now is, is, is someone who, if he does win the championship, no one will be in the least bit surprised because he's proved to us, I think, over the last year or two, that he really does have the right stuff to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Every credit to Karin. Uh, he, he didn't go anywhere. He stayed stayed with him. Very mentally tough. But I just think with Neil Robertson, you know, again, he's won the World Championship. Let's, <laughs> let's not forget that. But every season... You know, he plays great in tournaments. He's going to win two or three every season because he's that good. Comes to the Crucible. It seems to me if he doesn't play his A game, he doesn't win. You know, there's no sort of... He plays his A game. He sweeps people away. You think this guy can't lose. Then there's suddenly a match where he gets into his own head, whether it's the pressure of the tournament. I mean, I guess that's probably the favourite explanation. But the fact that then he can't seem to extricate himself from it, he doesn't change, he didn't change his strategy at any point, he didn't seem to me in that match. And it's disappointing. I I think a lot of Neil as a player and a person, actually, I think he's a good guy. Of course. He's done a lot for snooker. His situation is different to most of the other players, you know, the sacrifices he's made. He would be a brilliant world champion, again, for our sport. It's not going to happen this year. And next year he goes there, it will have been 12 years since he won it. It'll be 40. I mean, we don't think of him as that age, but he will be. That's a fact. Um, I'm not saying he can't win it. Of course I'm not. I, I, and, as, and as I've said, I'd be delighted if he did. But it just seems it's the same thing every year now. He gets to this stage of the tournament. And the thing that, he, as I say, he identified couldn't happen, happened. And it underlines again what we were saying. Early round form is no indication at all to your chances of winning the World Championship. To me, the World Championship is like two phases. It's like, say, a World Cup or a Euros in football. The first two rounds to me feel like the group stage. Just get through it. Don't get beaten. Then find your form in the second week. And what he's doing a lot of the time is finding his form early on because he did play very well at times uh, to get to the quarterfinals. And then in the quarterfinals showed a bit of form, but just didn't keep it going. And as you say, I think his approach and his mindset were as much the reason for that as anything else. Do you want to hear some praise for me for a a joke about... A, no. a, a, joke, a joke about a music act from the, the 1980s. Go on, then. Uh, Stephen Forbes writes, uh, Dave, you deserve the applause button to be pressed for the musical quip during the Hawkins-Selt match of the Crucible. As Hawkins clinched his 10-3 victory over Selt, 
you said that Self came out to the sounds of two tries by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, but the problem was he wasn't able to relax. Oh, my God. Hang on a minute. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. That's pretty much exactly what I said straight after the end of the Moscone Cup last year. Really? Yes, because when the European... <laughs> this is amazing. But when right. the European team won it, they were uh, they were jumping up and down. I think they were on top of the table. Two tribes was playing. And I said that. I said, uh, and they're celebrating to the strains of two tribes. And now they really can relax. The thing is, Dave, I took it a stage further. And frankly, <laughs> fr- frankly I'm insulted you weren't watching the Moscone Cup. Because then I started to well, talk Well, it was on about, the same time as the UK Championship. Well, that's true, actually, yeah. yeah. So I then started to talk about the uh, the bond between the players, and I said something about the power of love within oh, no. this team. I remember someone saying to me the next day, I really would have been worried if you'd taken it as far as Warriors of the Wasteland. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. and by the way, anyone who wasn't around in 1984 is going to be wondering what on earth we're talking about here. Yeah. But uh, yeah, well, so, so frankly, I'm claiming the credit for that because I did that uh, way back in December. And uh, just to add to that, the amazing thing was, it was an epic journey to get back because with all the travel problems at the moment, it was a couple of days later by the time I got home, got back, got in a taxi to go home. The first song that came on the radio was, uh, well, it was certainly one of those Frankie Goes to Hollywood songs. I think it was it was Two Tribes. So maybe they had been listening. Well, just to continue the email, Stephen says, yeah. uh, as I say, it deserved more recognition. Still, please know it was enjoyed on a sunny evening in Scotland, as I'm sure it would have been by many of Eurosport's global audience of a certain demographic. Now, he says about uh, sort of... Pu- sort of punditry in general. Oh, he also says, by the way, he says him and his family have been avid listeners since episode one, a feat of endurance for both parties, one might say. Well, that's certainly true. Mm-hmm. He, he, he's enjoyed Anthony Hamilton on Eurosport, who's made his debut. He says, you were right in forecasting Anthony would make for an insightful co-commentator, offering different perspectives from a player's point of view, in particular his explanation on shot choices and various considerations. What I've enjoyed with Anthony is he's very good at sort of what it's like playing at the Crucible, not nececessarily in the match, but just being at the crucible. What's it like in the dressing rooms? What's it like in terms of your interaction with your family? He was saying he would never have his dad in the dressing room because he, you know, he was too close to him. He didn't want actually to even see maybe a look of disappointment on his face or or anything like that. He he needed to keep away from him. All that stuff is kind of you don't. I guess you don't consider watching. You know, we, we people may think they're just walking off the street and play, but there's all sorts of stuff that goes on. And Anthony's been excellent at that. And uh, Stephen uh, is thinking about sort of other players who could potentially step up and become a pundit. He's actually named one who's still in the tournament, Sean Murphy, who has done some. Yeah. Um, but he says uh, he has the personality and intelligence to add value to an increasingly impressive lineup, particularly at Eurosport. And your dealings with Sean over the years, has he ever indicated such a career would be of interest to him? Definitely has. <laughs> he yeah, has. I think he, he's yeah. done some. He did some at the Championship League uh, last year, and he's done BBC before. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's an obvious candidate, really. I think, Sean, you know, he's, he's, always, got, uh, he's always got plenty to say, definitely. And uh, also, I must say, I heard uh, Jack Lazowski uh, on the BBC, and they, they seem to um, almost take their orders from Judd Trump, who, who made a big fuss about they needed mm. younger pundits. Jack came in. He told a lovely story, uh, Jack, about meeting Alan McManus for the first time. He was commentating with Alan, and he said that the first Stuka tournament he ever went to... Um, it was the Welsh Open, and it, it, it was getting late, and they had school the next day, and his dad had taken him, said, we've got to go, and he didn't want to go because he was absolutely enraptured by the snooker, and he was in tears as they left, and as they left, they saw Alan walking across the car park, and they went running up to him, got his autograph, had a chat with him, first snooker player he ever spoke to, and the way Jack told this story, it was absolutely lovely, and, uh, you know, we've said before uh, what a nice guy he is, but I really came across on there, so... Mm. You know, good luck to him if he's going to start doing that. He's, uh, you know, he's. I, I think he's impossible to dislike, Jack. Actually. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that story isn't surprising at all, actually, because we both know Alan quite well, yeah. you particularly because you've worked yeah. with him so much. And, you know, we're not we wouldn't be in the least bit surprised to hear that uh, he would conduct himself in that way. As for Jack, for me, it's it's basically between him and the Irish golfer, Des Smith, the title of nicest man in the world of sport. So it's, it's great to see him doing a bit of, of, of that. And uh, this is what we were saying before. It'd be great if he could win one of the big titles because, you know, he'd be such a great asset to the game in that way in terms of publicity and profile and everything. And I really like listening to Anthony as well. Again, like you, I thought he would be good and, and he certainly has been. And I, I really like listening to Joe Johnson as well, actually. And the two of them to me are quite similar in that they're not really interested in sort of, you know, being stars and, mm. you know, kind of making, you know, like, you know, naff jokes and things like that. They just talk about the game, they call the shots, and they talk about what it's like to be a player at that level. And, you know, Joe obviously won the championship. Yeah. Anthony has done well at the Crucible many times. Uh, so, to when, me, when they're say, quite when, similar in that way. When you say naff jokes, are you going back to my Frankie Goes to Hollywood? <laughs> no, that's that's not naff, because I'm into that oh, one course, first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, OK, so we'll wrap up shortly. But um, Nick Metcalf from Talking Stuka podcast, a good mm-hmm. friend of ours. Yeah. Um, but also something of a troublemaker, I think, because he's been he's been trying to uh, uh, stir up a discussion about um, the length of the semi-finals. This is a bit of an old sore, isn't it? You know, are they too long? Um, what's your view on that? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my view as well. Listen, I well, objectively, they probably are too long. But I guess the question is, should they be cut? I say absolutely not. And here's why. OK, there's two reasons. One. The last 40 years, the format has not changed apart from they made them slightly longer, a couple of frames yeah. longer, which was a bit, of, a little bit of lunacy. But essentially, for the last 40 years, every champion has faced the same test. So whoever wins it this year can say, unlike, for example, at the UK Championship, they can say it's the same format. I've faced the same test as everyone else. It's a constant. And tying in with that, I can guarantee you this. If they cut the semi-final length, someone would say, well... Aren't the, aren't the quarterfinals, aren't the second round too long? Before you know it, someone will say, we could play this in a week, couldn't we? Yeah, but why would you want to play? I mean, you know, th- this is, I never understand this thing. It's like, you know, it's fantastic for snooker fans. At the end of it, you want there to be more of it. Why would you want to make it any shorter? The, it is definitely the case that this day, the Thursday, the 13th day, is always a little bit of a come down because generally the Wednesday is one of the best days of the championship. And I think that was... In fact, this year it probably was the best, the best day so far because we had a couple of big stories and big finishes there. And then there's a bit of a come down on the Thursday because it's the early stages of each match. Uh, the finish is a long way away. But then you get to the final Saturday, and that's often a great day because both of those matches have been slow burners, building up over the three days. You take a day out of that, and it's not really going to be the same anymore. So I, I don't well, see any reason at all. I mean, why, why, why change it? I mean, well, why to be fair... Than at all? To be fair to Nick, one of his uh, arguments is that, and I think this is an argument that is worth considering, is that he feels maybe it should be 16 days and it shouldn't finish on a Monday because obviously that's only a bank holiday in the UK. Now, we're increasingly selling this sport to overseas markets and a lot of other countries, well, all of the countries, actually, it's not a bank holiday. So people are at work. Well, it is here as well. and It it is in Ireland. Yeah, maybe I think one or two. But yes. You are right, yeah. But if you want so, to do that, just start it on the Friday then. Well, I've said, for, yeah, I think if you started Friday night, you know, primetime telly, that would be, you'd have to obviously slightly alter the, maybe there wouldn't be so many mornings off, whatever, that'd be mm-hmm. for the people to sort out. But that could be a runner. Yeah, I, don't, I, I think it's a, it's a ludicrous format in many ways. It's an eccentric format. 
but it's worked, hasn't it? It's, it's, it's worked. an eccentric game. It's an eccentric yeah. game full of eccentric people doing eccentric podcasts and making eccentric jokes about Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And I mean, that's what we love about continue. snooker. Long may exactly. that continue. Yeah. So, okay, so finally then, uh, let's look at these semi-finals very quickly. Yeah. Selby v. Bingham, Wilson v. Murphy. I mean, these are big hitters. These are people, three of them have won it already. Wilson's been in a final. Uh, Mark Selby, I think, does start favour to the four based on performance, based on his record. But it, it is, uh, to, to use a contemporary reference from 1989, up for grabs now, isn't it? Any of them could win this. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, all but one of them have won it. And the other one is Kyron Wilson, who we've been talking about as a potential champion for a number of years. So there'll be no surprise now, really. I suppose, to be fair, you might be a bit surprised if Stuart Bingham ends up as a two-time world champion because of the category that would put him in when you consider how few players, and they're all... You know, all-time greats, really, who have been champions more than once. But, uh, you know, as we've said before, the year he did win it, he played so well to win it throughout the championship and had an absolute beast of a draw to get through. He's played really well so far this year, and he'll probably have to continue playing that well if he is to go the distance. So if he becomes a two-time world champion, he'll have done it the hard way both times. We could, of course, end up with a Bingham-Murphy final, as we did in 2015, which I think in terms of overall quality was probably the best world final there's ever been. But I'm just going to go for Selby. I think he's going to really fancy it now. He knows he missed a big, big chance to win his fourth world title last year. In many respects, this is perhaps an even better chance for him now. So I just fancy him to have a bit too much for Bingham over the four sessions. And having gone with my hunch that Murphy might beat Trump in the quarterfinals, I'm going to go with a slight hunch that he might beat Wilson in the semis as well. So Selby Murphy, I'm saying. Yeah, I, I sort of slightly see Murphy winning it actually even though Selby yeah. Selby is the logical choice I think at this point I think any of them could I think that's the great thing actually there's no one making up the numbers there they're all big hitters um yeah I mean but let's be honest I mean I I, I said Ronnie would win it so <laughs> before yeah, you said, and you said ding so no, no one wants to be tipped by us yeah you know, no, no. When, we, when we updated our tips after the first round I mean you know both of those players went out Next round as well. Obviously, you were sticking with Ronnie. And I went to Mark Allen. I think it's good, actually, as well, in a way. We, we were looking at one stage at the strong possibility of a semi-final lineup made up entirely of former winners, which I don't think has ever happened before, actually. And I think you, you need that. You need the, the, the sort of dynamic of someone trying to become world champion for the first time. I think it might have taken a little bit away from it if we'd gone into the one-table stage and they'd all won it before. It's, it's great to have someone in there who's, who's trying to break that barrier. I should probably, well, I'll rephrase that. I should definitely have asked you this before we started, but are we are we doing a final preview or are we coming back after the final? I think we'll do both, won't we? Okay, fair enough. Yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah. I'll, I'll be easy. Okay, so that, that answers my next question, which is that we will be back on Sunday uh, to look ahead to the final and then we'll be back with our usual review. Keep your emails coming in. There's going to be plenty of time in the next few months to go through them. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. But that is it. Enjoy the semi-finals. They're three long days, three big days, building up to the final. It's nearly over, but I, but let's go back to what I said earlier. Uh, to win the World Championship, I don't think I did say this, but I'll, I'll say it mm. now. To win the World Championship, you've got to win 71 frames. So far, they've won 36. So there's still 35 frames to be won. In many ways, we're only halfway through this thing. Enjoy the semi-finals. And as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.